Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I hope you'll enjoy our program. Hello, welcome to Liberal Europe podcast. My name is Leszek Jaszczewski. And my guest today is Dimitar Bechev, a lecturer at Oxford School of Global and Area Studies and a visiting scholar of Carnegie Europe, author of many books, among others, The Rival Power, Russia in Southeast Europe, and Turkey under Erdogan, and also the, the recent paper that just been released, What Has Stopped EU Enlargement in the Western Balkans. Hello, Dimitar. Hello, Leszek. Welcome, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for making time. So before we get to the details of, of your paper and, uh, and the enlargement process in, in the Balkans, can we speak more broadly about the, the status of current status of the, because I think that every, uh, every listener would be familiar what is the status of the um, uh, of the enlargement process in the Western Balkans? Can you go country by country and tell us at which stage, who is at at which stage, and uh, perhaps we can get to the details? It's really appropriate to have this conversation now, not just because the, we had a summit last week, but also uh, these days we are marking the tenth anniversary since uh, Montenegro started ne uh, membership negotiations. And it's probably good to start with the Montenegrins because they're most advanced. But still, uh, they have opened uh, a lot of chapters, uh, and I won't go into the technical, um, the technical details of what they're negotiating and how the process is continuing. But let's say for for the listeners that Montenegro is ahead of the pack right now. But it doesn't mean much because they now have a clear commitment by the EU uh, when they will be closing the uh, the negotiations and uh, moving towards signing a treaty. So next in line is Serbia, uh, which started negotiating in 2014. Uh, but Serbia is also stuck uh, to a lesser, uh, to a greater degree than, than Montenegro. If I'm not mistaken, they haven't opened any new chapter over the past one year. And obviously, the unresolved dispute over Kosovo is a major sticking point. Uh, next in line, you have, um, on the one hand, Albania, on the other, North Macedonia. And where that's where lots of attention has been paid, because those two have uh, been blocked by, by Bulgaria. Uh, so the Bulgarian veto concerns North Macedonia, and there's a long-standing dispute around history and uh, the Macedonian language. Uh, but Albania is, as it were, the collateral victim or collateral damage uh, to, to the veto. Um, right now, we have a French presidency proposal on how to move forward between Skopje and Skopje. Uh, which might unblock uh, the process, the actual start of negotiations, but that's far from certain. And I'm sure we have the opportunity to discuss further uh, in the conversation. Uh, last in line, uh, the two um, outliers. One is Bosnia. Uh, Bosnia, unfortunately, is still not uh, recognized as a candidate. And the recent decision by uh, the EU to grant Canada status to Moldova, but also Ukraine, has gone down really badly in Sarajevo because, in terms of um, formal progress, those Eastern European countries in the post-Soviet space have leapfrogged Bosnia. And finally, have Kosovo, uh, which is hampered 
by the fact that you have five member states not recognizing Kosovo as a sovereign state. But in a more operational, more operational level, Kosovo has met all the prerequisites for uh, visa liberalization. And unfortunately, it has not been granted. So uh, by comparison, everyone else in the region, in the Western Balkans, has been traveling visa-free since 2009 or 2010, so a decade ahead. And that creates lots of bad blood in Kosovo for being left uh, out in the process. So very briefly, this is where we are uh, right now. Uh, it's been a hard slog for the region. It frankly doesn't look as if there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Right. It's, it seems that the, the war in the former Yugoslavia kind of kick-started the process of uh, commitment from the then 15, uh, EU15 to integrate the Central Eastern Europe, well, including also uh, Malta and Cyprus, and then also Bulgaria and Romania. It's interesting to see whether the war in Ukraine will actually kickstart the process of enlargement uh, also into the Western Balkans, not just uh, potentially to Moldova and, and Ukraine, which are you know, not very likely any, anytime soon anyway. But before we get to this, can you, can you try to compare uh, the, the process of a different process of, of enlargement from the early 2000s when Bulgaria and Romania were candidate countries and to this process now. It seems to be that now it's not a, a completely honest or uh, Gerald Knaus, with whom I talked about it, called it like a very cynical uh, process that it's, it's the EU is not really committed. It seems like it's kind of forced to to make promises to the Western Balkans, but even Montenegro, which you, which you said, describe as kind of front runner, doesn't have a real prospect of joining EU any, at any concrete date. How would you compare these processes of, of Bulgaria and Romania, and perhaps also other Central Eastern European countries, which we've joined before, and the current process of negotiations with the Western Balkans? Well, that's a great question and there are a lot of similarities but also clear differences. Uh, one is that with Bulgaria and Romania, uh, geopolitics played a, a crucial role just to backtrack a little bit. Uh, they received a positive signal for the start of membership negotiations in December 1999 in the Helsinki Council, uh, largely because uh, at that point, current the then member states felt that they needed to be rewarded for their support for the West during the Kosovo War. Uh, Tony Blair, who toured Sofia and Bucharest back then, played a very critical role. At the time when actually the European Commission was uh, very skeptical about the, the level of preparedness by those two. Uh, so geopolitics worked uh, in favor of, of Romania and Bulgaria, but also and that's absolutely the case that at that point the um, the doors of the EU were were, were open uh, and there was this clear uh, commitment to the process that all things being equal you could actually digest uh, even countries with uh, institutional problems and um, state capture being prevalent as Bulgaria and Romania and then over time uh, they will improve by being included. That's not the case uh, in the Western Balkans. In fact, the bar has gone up uh, since uh, those days. Um, that's partly to do with the experience of the previous enlargement, not just because uh, EU uh, leaders, um, including um, those of the institutions in Brussels, realized how much 
unfinished business there was and that once you become a member EU's leverage goes down if not evaporates but also to do with um, the serious obstacles uh, specific to the Western Balkans including the difficult legacy of the wars in the 1990s which translates into uh, various uh, issues with territorial claims, with sovereignty di disputes. That's clearly the case in uh, in Serbia, uh, Kosovo. Uh, without Kosovo, you could imagine a scenario where Serbia makes uh, much more um, rapid progress to to becoming a member state. Uh, so that's that's clearly a difference. Uh, the experience of Poland and Hungary, where you had two uh, member states, very much seen as front runners in the good old days uh, before 2004 and all of a sudden uh, a decade later they turned into a major headache for, for the EU um, for reasons you don't need to be, to be uh, sort of uh, explained because you live uh, in Poland. Uh, that also plays and now if you uh, go to uh, Paris and um, talk to officials they always bring up um, democratic backsliding is, is a major concern. Whether they do it uh, because of genuine uh, commitment to democracy or because of strategic reasons, uh, in other words, they are looking for excuse not to enlarge, uh, it's probably beyond the point, but clearly this precedent of two major states in Central and Eastern Europe going backwards is is, is, is critical. And and, and the, the problems, everything to do with corruption, state capture, uh, on top of it. Do you understand why the process is so much more difficult these days? Right. Uh, th thank you, Dimitri. It's, it's, yeah, I, I think I quite agree. It's like, I'm, I'm wondering to what extent also the, the kind of mood in the EU has changed. So it was uh, until I think that the economic crisis is kind of a general optimism and, and the, the, the belief in that, well, better future kind of also non-alternative on the economic and democratic side, I think it played an immense role in the region as well, right? So it wasn't just about joining EU and getting the money or getting the vote in the council, but also it seemed that the alternative is simply a collapse into the uh, kind of post-Soviet sphere of influence. But even then, Russia didn't seem that threatening until the uh, perhaps the war in Georgia and uh, so, and then everything changed. And uh, also, I'm, I'm wondering to what extent the fact that UK is gone from the EU and it's been gone for quite a while under the, the Tory rule as a kind of force for that for the transformation of the EU, and uh, that there is no, it, it seems at least that there is no like a leader on the uh, currently on the EU side that would see the its interest in enlargement. Actually, it's quite the opposite, right? Especially in the case of France. I don't, I'm not sure about the German uh, Germany role, which was actually a pivotal in case of at least Central Europe. I'm not so sure about the Romania and Bulgaria, but uh, at least in the case of Central Central Europe. So I'm wondering, how do you think that that you changed, and what do you it, I mean, what role do you think it, it might have played that the Balkans, which are by the way less than I think Western Balkans are less than I don't know 80 million people or something like this, so it's less than 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 Romania. And it still seems to be such a huge problem. And, you know, people going there for holidays, at least to some of these countries, you know, uh, Montenegro and Macedonia seem to be following the, the, the foreign policy of the, of the EU pretty closely. And well, anyway, uh, so I'm wondering to what extent do you think that EU has changed and the mood on the continent has changed and 
to what extent it plays a role, uh, or to what extent also those countries might be a bigger uh, problem, as you, as you mentioned in your paper, the ethno-nationalisms and, and problems like, you know, border problems between the countries. So if we can start with the EU and the mood on the continent and, you know, the general kind of optimism versus the pessimism uh, on the, on the, on, in Europe. I think overall it's fair to say that the EU has grown much more introspective compared to uh, its peak years uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War and, and the 2000s. Um, the economic crisis and its um, sort of uh, fallout in Europe with the Eurozone crisis uh, in the 2010s played a, an immense role because it opened um, the whole discussion about uh, internal consolidation. So much political energy has been put into uh, overhauling the existing institutions, strengthening uh, moving from the monetary to the fiscal union, um, which of course opens a whole lot of questions to do with state power and relations between the main stakeholders. That's where energy has been spent and there's much less attention paid to EU's external projection, uh, apart from moments where actually you need to react to events as is the case now with Ukraine. So that's number one. The departure of, of the UK uh, made a huge difference, I think, because before uh, the UK was a very strong advocate for expansion. For um, then Germany was in the middle. They could, because of economic interconnectivity to the region, and that's I don't think Southeast Europe is in any way different if you look at trade figures, migration patterns, a very similar picture that you have in Poland would emerge. So if the UK and Germany could be swayed to take a more proactive approach, the enlargement policy was, was moving forward. And by the way, UK was critical in Bosnia as well, and probably still is because it plays a part in the Peace Implementation Council and one of the more successful, in hindsight, uh, high representatives on the ground. Uh, Ashdown was was a Brit. Uh, so Brexit makes makes some difference, I think, as well. But I think fundamentally for the EU, uh, the current status quo is, is bearable in the Western Balkans. Um, what are the costs of non-enlargement? Uh, maybe some political instability, uh, maybe some nasty populists uh, in the region. But frankly, there won't be a major military conflict of the kind we uh, observe in the east uh, there won't be a big migration crisis you could call habit with uh, the political leadership in the western balkans at the same time you provide uh, individual citizens with a lot of access opportunities to the eu uh, and this status quo uh, becomes uh, sustainable and it's not perfect because it also connects to democratic decay um, the entrenchment of state capture. So those who remain societies are victim to the situation. But it's not the end of the world uh, seen from Brussels. I think that's, that's fundamental. And for elites in the Western Balkans, uh, this interregnum uh, provides a perfect opportunity to expand and consolidate their hold on power on the economic um, sort of life lifeline in the region, media, um, while 
uh, on paper uh, or rhetorically committed to EU membership. Um, so it's not their fault that their countries is not moving forward. It's EU's uh, reluctance to, to welcome new, new um, members. And what appeared initially as a temporary situation has the tendency to reproduce itself. And, and that's, that's uh, this vicious circle that we live in. Um, and um, it has, as the paper says, um, it's related both to supply factors, i.e. the EU not doing its job, but also to demand factors, uh, local actors being invested into the state of affairs we have. Right. And in, in, in your paper also lined about the, the kind of costs that, uh, well, pro-European, uh, well, generally pro-European population, with perhaps the exception of, of Serbia, has to bear, especially the, the leadership, which is like the, that's, Pro-EU stance is very much well among the it's popular among the uh, elites. Not necessarily translates into the majorities, which would be able to enforce the necessary changes. And I'm, you know, w when I see the process on the EU side, uh, we, we talked about this before. I think that in many ways the, the enlargement was seen as a kind of like a step in closing down the the accounts of the kind of Cold War Europe. So it was seen, I think, in this kind of historical process that it's kind of necessary to, to finish up the job. And it was since mid-90s, I think, pretty much obvious that, that it has to be done. While Balkans, because of the war, I think very much because of the war, seemed to be, I don't know, perhaps the Western Balkans was, I think, to some extent, even demonized. So it's, it's, that it's different, that this is you know, it's Balkans, right? It's you, you, you don't expect it to be kind of normal, you know, as other European countries. And I think still people, especially those who don't focus on the region, and as you said, it's it seems that the cost of not integrating Western Balkans is bearable in most of the EU countries. Uh, people are not aware of the uh, of the amount of changes that has been uh, that has already happened uh, over there. And I'm wondering to what extent do you think that it is possible to because you, you you try to be fair i think in your paper to all to criticize both you and the local leadership so i'm wondering to what extent do you think it is possible to sustain the commitments for democratic change and capital i mean economic change or reform if necessary regardless of the uh incentives from the from the eu because they seem to be non-existent right now the membership so I mean, those changes will have to happen regardless whether you are is, is ready to offer the prospects of a membership. But if they don't happen, those prospects are, will be even more uh, 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 more far away in the future. So do you think that there's like internal kind of like determination uh, kind of for the liberal democratic future in the Western Balkans, whether or not EU is happy to to, to open its doors? Because if not, I think that it's going to be even harder. And uh, and I'm looking at Serbia, for example, and it seems that actually the situation is getting worse every every year. Could, could you try to develop on this? I know that perhaps putting all the countries from the Western Balkans to one basket is very unfair. So perhaps you can try to talk about them, you know, in the groups or separately. Well, let me pick up on this one uh, because it sort of connects to your point about historical legacies. And in the case of the Western Balkans, one legacy that really uh, is important beyond, of course, the wars in the 1990s, which, as you say, put the region apart from the rest of post-communist Europe. Um, the Cold War is very, very relevant. Now, Yugoslavia had a very special position 
uh, in the Cold War uh, because uh, it enjoyed very good ties with the West. And starting from the early 60s, the communist leadership uh, allowed people to seek employment and to move freely to Western Europe because it was critical to the economy with remittances. As a result, you have generations in this part of uh, Europe who are accustomed to the West and they take the West for granted. Uh, and so much so that this uh, narrative about the return to Europe, which was so important in Central Europe, certainly, but also, I would say, uh, in Romania and Bulgaria, uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, it didn't quite apply to, to the Yugoslavs. Um, even in Croatia, when it was joining, um, the attitude was mixed towards the EU. Um, half of the people, or one-third actually, was uh, against and one third was in favor, and one third was undecided. Uh, and of course, with the referendum then judged something else. But my point is about Eurorealism. People are not, uh, by definition, into this idea that the EU is, is the bright future. Albania is very different, again, because of the Cold War being so isolated. In Albania, um, the pool of the West and re-entering the West. And here we are talking about a country which was very isolated and um, hardcore, uh, victim to this hardcore uh, staunch regime, venerating Stalin until until the very end. So it's a different dynamic. Uh, but for the rest of the region, this Yugoslav legacy uh, matters, matters a lot. And it's, therefore it's, it's difficult to actually, it's not impossible, but it's difficult to produce the sort of social movements or politicians who take the EU as their um, battle cry uh, and at least motivate um, a sufficient number of, of, of people. That's not to say that the EU is irrelevant on the country. It does matter. And I think North Macedonia is a good example where actually you had an opposition movement in 2015, 2016, overthrowing the then um, government of Nikola Gruevski uh, in the name of restarting the accession process. But what I want to say is that there's also this cynical attitude vis-a-vis uh, -vis the EU, which now, because of the deadlock, so the impasse, has been really reinforced uh, in, in this region, and it has its historical resonance. Now you question how do we get beyond this vicious cycle. Um, yeah, I mean, basically you have to make a case, and some people are doing it to give them credit, that institutional consolidation, transparency, democracy is not a, about Brussels, it's, it's about how those societies function. Uh, it's about your well-being uh, as citizens and, and society at large. Um, you want to live in the Montenegro, Serbia or Albania, which is better governed for your own sake, not because you want to tick, tick a box and, and join join the EU. And you have those voices uh, here and there. I'm not sure they've reached the critical mass uh, so as to challenge the, the current status quo, where you have politicians talking the talk but not walking the walk. But it will be unfair not to give credit uh, to people who have rallied and, and challenged and tried to push back against uh, capture, state capture. The EU, of course, 
plays an ambiguous role because, and people, it's hardly original on my part to say that for many civic-minded um, citizens of the Western Balkans, it's much easier these days just to pack up and leave and set, settle in, in Germany or Denmark or Sweden. Uh, then challenge or the status quo in their own countries. Uh, so integration demobilizes as well as much as it mobilizes. But um, it, it would be also not fair vis-a-vis -vis the EU just to um, paint it as deeply invested in the status quo because it does inspire, um, does inspire some uh, civic action. Uh, the EU leaders haven't done a good job because of structural constraints, they have to talk to the governments and uh, they have to um, push forward the very technocratic process uh, related to economic cooperation, adoption of the key and the like. Uh, and very often um, people who are truly committed to EU's values, as in democracy, human rights, transparency, are bypassed. So at this stage, there's this odd dynamic that I talk about in the paper of the most Europhile segment of the population feeling alienated from, from the EU. Um, how do you square the circle if you're Ursula von der Leyen or Charles uh, Michel? I'm not sure because there's real politics. You cannot just bypass Vucic. But they're creative ways and I think the European Parliament is doing it because of the nature of the institution to reach out to civil society and to challenge the, the power holders in the Western Balkans. But uh, member states should, should play a role just to stand up to their ideals because it will be sort of a betrayal to you itself if people who actually do believe that the real believers are left out uh, in, this, in this process, however shallow and hollowed out the process might be in itself. Right. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's the important message that that's especially that well, both sides, but you especially remember as well. Be, be, before we end, I have two 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 sh short questions to you. First is with regard to Bulgaria, because from the outside it seems that governments has fallen mainly because it wanted to make concessions for the North Macedonia to be able to to access EU. Can you try to uh, well? Uh, try to explain to us what exactly happened and what is happening right now in Bulgaria, what might happen uh, with regard to the government and uh, the forces which are, uh, well, now at, at, at play. Uh, because it's, it's, you know, Bulgaria has been recently kind of like being pointed fingers at by the North Macedonia and this is Bulgaria's fault. I think it's not entirely, um, it's not entirely fair because we, we remember the you know French stance you know in the past with regard to North Macedonia, maybe now Bulgaria is also uh, well. Uh, I, I think many countries are quite happy with this veto. I'm not sure uh, because it's it's easy to to be um, to be behind the Bulgaria back and not doing anything on North Macedonia. I think Albania would like to move forward without North Macedonia. Uh, at least this is what I've heard from from Prime Minister saying on the um, um, uh, on the political podcast. So can you explain us what's, what happened in Bulgaria and what's happening right now with regard to the government and also the North Macedonia question? How, I mean, what are the kind of concerns and how do you see it from the, well, a little bit from the outside, right? You, you, you are based outside the country. So I hope you can, you know, understand, but also 
uh, see it in a more objective way than, than most people. Uh, those demands that are placed against North Macedonia. Well, let's dispel this there's mis misunderstanding that the coalition unraveled because of disagreements over Macedonia. That's not the case. The real reason why this happened, why a, a party uh, left uh, the cabinet had to do with money. It's much more mundane. <laughs> it's several billions by way of uh, highway construction money that contracts inherited from the previous government. And also another battle related to a scheme on the border between Bulgaria and Turkey, which of course is EU's external border. Uh, so that's also tells you what really animates Bulgarian politics. It's not identity issues. In fact, Macedonia is really low in terms of what keeps sort of the political life afloat. And the party that was instrumental to the veto and this far right nationalist outfit um, in 2020, which um, sort of twisted the arms of Borisov to impose the veto. They fell to pass the threshold uh, in 2021 when he had three elections. So it's not a very salient issue with, with voters. And it was made so now because of top-down politicization, where political elites and media are involved. But it's not an organic thing. But money matters and, and fights about distribution of resources is absolutely critical, including EU, EU funds. And that's where we are. And it touches on the very basis of what state power is about and who owns the state and, and how you exercise um, control over, over elites, uh, a theme that obviously is very important elsewhere uh, in the so-called new member states as well. Now, the big issue is what happens at the next elections, because we are very likely to have another round, uh, maybe in September, whether this new party that was established by the outgoing Prime Minister Kirill Petkov will be able to generate enough votes. I mean, they had it easy before because they were the new kids on the block. And it's always like that in Bulgaria, if somebody comes around and says, oh, stamp out corruption, and they get um, the voters behind them. But whether they have the staying power and to repeat their success and then be able to put together another coalition, that's, that's a big question because the Again, as in the Western Balkans, the, the forces of the status quo are very resilient and very entrenched, and they have electoral support as well. Uh, it, it's a war of attrition, if, if you will. Not, not. It's, it's difficult to have a breakthrough. But again, these are the issues in Bulgaria. They have to do with with, with, with state. Uh, what happens with Macedonia? I, I don't know. I mean, the parliament. One of the last things that they voted was to accept the French proposal. Uh, so there's some light at the end of the tunnel. The issue is whether um, North Macedonia will accept the, the, the proposal, because uh, to make it happen, you need buy-in from Skopje as well. But as far as Bulgarian politicians are concerned, they're happy because now the ball is in the court of Skopje, and they've accepted the compromise solution. The compromise is very much accommodating vis-a-vis -vis Sofia, uh, but the problem longer term is that, I mean, if your goal is to win sympathy in North Macedonia, and which will enable you to convince enough number of people, sufficient number of people in the veracity of your historical narrative, uh, vetoing and using coercion is not a very productive way to move forward. So you alienated a neighboring country 
uh, it, it turned this dynamic into a zero-sum one, and you won't be winning anybody's hearts and minds over there. And that's the fundamental problem. But I don't think from the very start that was the purpose. I mean, the purpose of the veto was just to keep the then coalition for another six months in government to run its full mandate. And uh, so there's a lot of cynical joking. Uh, this is a political football that is making the rounds in, in Bulgaria. But the good news is that as salient as the issue is right now, it might die, die out pretty easily because just there's no evidence that the voters care about it uh, and it's a, it resonates with society. That's not enough for the Macedonians because they because they are stuck in this process and they're hostage to Bulgaria. Uh, but uh, just the good news, I guess, is that even in part of the world where we stereotypically think about nationalism being such a powerful force, which it is probably at some level, um, what drives policies and decisions is not some atavistic attachment to 19th century ideologies, but much more mundane concern about relative power and access to resources. Well, and uh, that's perhaps more well, at least in the long term, optimistic uh, and, and, and to what might be seen right now, it's it's always, I think, a problem to see that, well, the, the new people from the outside of politics trying to gain grounds in the, well, already well-established scene, it's it's not so easy as it might seem uh, with so many vested interests and, and in Bulgaria it played out. Uh, it's, it's just a sign of hope that perhaps North Macedonia, it's not such a big issue as, 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 as many I expected, and I would like to to end the, our conversation with well, well, kind of a challenge uh, for you. So, uh, uh, first of all, would be to try to uh, like how to persuade, or would you would you try to persuade the the Western Europeans or the current you know EU citizens that why why the enlargement of the Western Balkans is in their interest. And like, you know, why, why should they care? I mean, because most people don't really care about, you know, the EU standing, you know, all this stuff that perhaps some prime ministers, not all of them should care about. But, but I mean, wh why is it important to, 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 to average voter to care and not be against, but perhaps pro? And on the other hand, also, whether you, you try to think about selling points of maybe not Macron proposal, but some other uh, our our colleagues uh, Piotr Boras and Kai Olaf Lange wrote a paper about it, like how to make a kind of stages of of integration between the EU and the Western Balkans and and Ukraine and Moldova, which is like offering certain freedoms. Uh, I think the same was Gerald Knau's proposal. So for freedoms available uh, when those countries are ready and and ready for membership but not waiting for the EU to be ready, because it seems that might take some time, but at least to grant them the full freedoms and, and creating kind of like the, uh, well, kind of association as exists between EU and, let's say, Norway, for example. Uh, so would you try to, to think about the ways to sell to, the, to, the, to those different groups those particular points? But you can, of course, disagree or try to deconstruct them, but I'm wondering how would you... How would you describe the kind of incentives? For, for, for well, at this, this point, I think the most credible argument is geopolitical, that by embracing those countries and completing enlargement, you are building better defenses for Europe um, at a time where world politics becoming growingly competitive. And the other argument is that, of course, this entails some costs, 
but the costs are not prohibitive. You won't be undermining the EU, uh, despite everything people might be telling you. Uh, in other words, those countries won't behave as Poland or Hungary rocking the boat in Brussels, but there'll be even elites which are corrupt and to the, to the bone and predatory uh, in their mindset. They'll be behaving the way Bulgaria normally behave, uh, going with the flow, complying with uh, the policy on Eurozone reform, on the green transition or what, what have you, even migration. Uh, but on the assumption that Brussels won't be interfering in their domestic business. So that will be the bargain for maybe not for Serbia, but for the rest of the Western Balkans. So we end up with several Bulgarias or Romanias, not with Hungary or Poland. I mean, it's a bit of a cynical argument to make, but it's fair and it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's frank. <laughs> so I, I guess that's, that's the thing. So a combination of make Europe secure and and geopolitically important and consequential plus it doesn't make a huge difference if you have Albania or Montenegro tiny countries that are already in and if, if even if they don't do the job uh, it will be on their citizens it won't be on the the average Dutch voter or French voter something along those lines uh, needs to to be said I mean it I'm I'm not sure that will play with the electorate in, in Western Europe, uh, but it's probably close to the actual state of affairs. Right. And, and and do you think that for freedoms or these kind of like associations on the way to integrations is some something that the politicians in the Western Balkans can sell to their populations? Do people care enough for this like membership minus status or or you think it just, you know, Macron trying to do something and but not really meaning this, which could well, be both, right? Minus is already working. I mean, it's not something new because it de facto is happening and it started materializing around in the late 2000s with visa liberalization because you could front load part of the key and link it to benefits and then change some areas of public policy. I mean, for example, asylum laws or uh, regulations on document con document uh, security and such like. And that was replicated in the Eastern Partnership with Georgia, Moldova and Ukraine following the same down the same path. So it's, it's tried and tested. Um, I think inevitably something will, that will be um, replayed with other parts of the IKEA, uh, approximation, harmonization. My only doubt is that this technocratic convergence need not affect core areas of governance. I mean, how do you transform the judiciary or uh, strengthen the checks and balances, uh, limiting predatory behavior by, by elites? You can very well envisage a situation where actually Western Balkans are taking on board and they're getting some benefits, but the fundamental way government works and politics operates is not changed. And that's the danger. So we won't have transformation and democratic consolidation, but we have integration. And that's already happening in, in Europe, going back to the beginning of our conversation, that in the 1990s, we tend to, as analysts, as practitioners, we tend to assume these are two vectors that are related. I mean, the more you integrate, the more you become democratic and liberal and so on and so forth. But Empirical evidence 
more and more shows that these are two different processes and they follow their own different logics. And it's very likely, despite Gerald Knauss and everybody else, that that will happen in the Western book. I mean, it's already happening de facto. So the single market won't result into kind of more competitive politics or corruption being stamped out and so on and so forth. Well, uh, one of the Polish writers, Jerzy uh, Pilich, once wrote that in Poland, everything is possible, even changes for the better. I hope the same would apply for the Western Balkans and you know, historical processes sometimes surprise us. It's usually, they usually surprise uh, European Union, but it's, it could at times respond to the crisis. And I hope this time it also realizes that without being strategic and geopolitical, even if it's not something that we want, but this is what is necessary, without this kind of thinking, well, we'll get into trouble. And uh, well, I do hope that we don't get into this kind of transactional mood with Western Balkans as we, as we did with Turkey, even though someone could argue that this is even more efficient strategy to expropriate, you know, uh, certain concessions and, for example, countries which played uh, with, with, with uh, EU on, for example, migration, like uh, Western Balkans were not really, uh, well, gratified for this. Uh, well, a big commitment they, they did to stop the, 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 the wave of migration. So anyway, uh, we would like all everyone to, to recommend, uh, I would like to our listeners, uh, your paper written for the Carnegie. Uh, I think it can be still, um, to be, it can be found on the, on the website and, uh, and of course your books. So uh, what has stopped you in the Balkans? Hopefully not forever, but perhaps for a time and hope that war in Ukraine could restart a different approach from the, from the EU. Dimitri thank you so much for, for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Leszek. Thank you. So uh, to everyone, thank you for being with us. Please tune in for uh, Ricardo Silvestre next week and we will meet again in two weeks. Thank you. Goodbye. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.